Welcome to Advaya Talks, a collection of recordings from some of our favourite events and gatherings. Advaya is a global platform for transformative education that explores what it means to be alive today. Looking at how we relate to the world around us, we connect ecology, spirituality and community to inspire inner transformation for outer change. Advaya was started by sisters Ruby and Christabel Reed. To find out more, you can visit us at advaya.co. In this episode, Rupert Sheldrake, author and biologist, debunks the standard view that the mind is nothing but brain activity and argues that our mind is extended in every act of visual perception. He discusses topics like telepathy, morphic resonance, precognition, meditation and animal communication to prove that our mind truly extends well beyond the brain. I'm talking about the mind beyond the brain um, and minds extend beyond brains in a range of different ways. So I have to cover a lot of ground in half an hour. But what I'm going to suggest is that our minds are extending beyond our brains right now. They're filling this room <coughs> in measurable ways, and I'll explain how. Um, they extend far beyond our brains in linking us to other people and to animals and to others with whom we have emotional bonds. Uh, they extend beyond our brains in time as well as in space. Um, through memory and through connections with the future. And they extend far beyond our brains through mystical experiences and connections with higher forms of consciousness. Now, the conventional view of minds is very different from all that. The conventional view uh, put forward by the materialist uh, belief system, which still dominates our universities and educational institutions, is that the mind is nothing but the brain. Minds are what brains do. Uh, minds are nothing but brain activity. And all our mental life is uh, encased inside our heads. Um, we're insulated from everybody else in the privacy of our skulls. Um, now that is the standard view. Um, and it's dominated the sciences since the late 19th century. It's the basis of contemporary medical thinking, biological thinking. The brain is just a computer inside the head. The trouble with this is that it doesn't, first of all, explain consciousness itself. If we live in a materialist universe which is made out of inanimate, unconscious matter, and everything is made of inanimate, unconscious stuff, then how come we're conscious at all? We ought not to be. So some materialist philosophers of mine try to pretend that we're not um, and try to explain away consciousness as a kind of illusion. The trouble is that doesn't really explain it away because illusion is itself a mode of consciousness. Um, and in fact, the very existence of consciousness is called the hard problem in the philosophy of mind. Now, the first point I want to make is that if we think about something as simple as vision, uh, we arrive at the idea of the extended mind, the mind beyond the brain. If you think of what's happening when you see me standing here now, um, the standard view says that lights reflected from me goes through the electromagnetic field, inverted images on your retinas, changes in the cone cells, impulses up the optic nerve, 
uh, changes in different regions of the brain. Um, and all that certainly happens. Uh, but then, that's supposed to explain vision. Well, first of all, it doesn't explain the fact you're conscious of what you're seeing. That's an aspect of the heart problem. But secondly, it doesn't explain your actual subjective sensation. You're experiencing a three-dimensional world in full color. All of that is supposed to be inside your head. Yet, nobody's ever seen a full-color 3D virtual reality display inside someone's head. Um, so that is profoundly mysterious. Where is your experience? It's meant to be inside your head. Well, the hypothesis I'm suggesting is so simple it's hard to understand. And that is that your image of me is in your mind but not in your brain. In fact, it's right here. It's outside your head. Uh, everything you see involves, I'm suggesting, a projection of mental images, of perceptual images, to where they seem to be. Sometimes they're projected to where something is not, like in an illusion or a hallucination. But generally speaking, they're projected to where things are, which is why we get around in the world without bumping into things. Um, normally this works very well. So, in other words, I'm suggesting that they, the mind it is extended in every act of visual perception and that um, our minds stretch out. If you look at a star, your mind projects out those images to the very star itself over literally astronomical distances. So our minds are extended in every act of perception. Right now they're filling this room. Now, that is uh, something that I think happens with animals as well. It's not special to people. This is the way vision works. It's a two-way theory of vision. Light comes in and uh, the visual images are projected out. It's not an original theory of mine. In fact, it's a theory believed in by people all over the world. It was de developed in ancient Greece in some detail. Euclid, the great geometer, um, explained for the first time clearly how mirrors work by pointing out that the, when you look at something in a mirror, your mind projects out these images, and they go straight through the mirror because they're virtual projections, they're aspects of the mind. They're not blocked by glass or mercury. Um, and that's why every time you look in a mirror, what you're seeing is the projections of your mind. So this theory is actually uh, explained as a common everyday experience that's projected out. Even in modern physics textbooks, it says that the virtual images are behind the mirror and they're projected. There's little dotted lines in physics textbooks showing this projection, but it doesn't really think through those implications. Now, this is not just a, a philosophical theory, it's a testable hypothesis. And it means that if your mind reaches out to touch, uh, to, to, when you see things, your mind's reaching out to touch what you look at. So you should be able to affect things by looking at them. And the easiest tests of this are in the realm of uh, looking at other people. If you look at someone from behind and they don't know you're there and they can't see you or smell you or touch you, and, uh, you might be hidden, you might be looking through a car window, for example, or a, a, a window of a, a building. Um, if this theory is correct, they should be able to feel you looking at them, or at least sometimes, uh, would become aware of it. So the first question is, does the sense of being stared at actually exist? 
And as soon as you ask that question, you realize this is a very common everyday phenomenon. 95% of the population, according to surveys, have actually experienced feeling being looked at. Um, uh, when, and, um, and there's also the phenomenon where you could look at somebody from behind and they turn around. Most people have had that experience too. So I'm guessing most of you will have done. But there's a complete taboo on this subject within the academic world, even though everyone knows it, even children know about this phenomenon, and it's known all over the world. In the academic world, it's not a you can't discuss this, because it's just dismissed as a superstition or make-believe. However, it's testable. And I've done a lot of research on this, first by interviewing people whose job it is to watch others, security guards, surveillance personnel, the drug squad at Heathrow, the store detectives at Harrods, and so on. And all of them uh, say, yes, of course, they, they just take it for granted. This is such a well-known phenomenon to practical people. Um, in the martial arts, you can train to become more sensitive. Um, and uh, there's now been hundreds of thousands of trials uh, experimental tests since the 1980s, uh, which show this is indeed a real measurable phenomenon. It even works through closed circuit television, uh, and people can tell when they're being watched through CCTV. I summarize all this evidence in a lot of published papers. There was a whole special issue of the Journal of Consciousness Studies on this, and it's all uh, brought together in my book, The Sense of Being Stared At, and other aspects of the extended mind. So I'm not going to go into the scientific evidence, but all the peer-reviewed papers are on my website if you want to see the uh, details of these experiments. So firstly, our minds are extended in every act of perception. Um, and so are the minds of other animals. The world is full of visual projections, just as it's full of the um, transmissions of cell phones and radio and TV waves. They're, this room is full of them. You can't see them, uh, but they're there. And in the same way, it's full of the visual projections of everyone here. The second way in which minds are extended um, is through our connections with other members of social groups. In flocks of birds, like murmurations of starlings, um, an entire flock can turn almost simultaneously uh, without the birds bumping into each other. Now, there's been a lot of attempts to understand this scientifically. Um, not only do they need to know where the other birds are, but they need to know where they're going to go. Uh, this is a simple everyday observation. These flocks of birds turn, uh, and I've never seen them bump into each other, and I've never seen any records of them doing that. They just know where the others are going. Um, how do they do it? In the 1980s, people tried to produce computer models uh, supposing that they just looked at their nearest neighbors and, and adjusted their flight according to some kind of algorithm. Uh, that doesn't work. It turns out those models simply don't account for this, uh, the speed at which this can happen. It works too fast for them just to watch, calculate things, then adjust their muscular movements. It happens much too fast for that. The best models today, uh, computer models, are in terms of fields. Um, the whole thing is a bit like a magnetic field. You move a magnet and all the iron filings change their positions. Uh, it's as if the whole flock has a field that links together the members of it and uh, uh, adjusts their behavior. They tune into the whole flock, as it were, the mind of the whole group. Now, the same is true of the schools of fish and herds of animals. 
And these social fields, which link together members of groups, um, continue to link together members of social groups even when they move apart. For example, in packs of wolves, the adult wolves leave the cubs in the den with a babysitter and go out uh, hunting, ranging over tens or even hundreds of miles. Um, and yet, naturalists have shown that they seem to remain in touch at a great distance, which can only be by telepathy. It's beyond the range of scent or sound. Um, and I think that these uh, abilities uh, these uh, connections between members of a group are indeed the basis of what we call telepathy. Telepathy literally means distant feeling, tele, distant, pathy, feeling. Um, and I think this is a normal, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural aspect of the way social animals coordinate their movements and behaviours, even at a distance. Again, I'm suggesting this is not some special human ability, it's a, a common animal ability. When I started investigating this, I thought, well, it's best to start with animals. They're less controversial than human psychic abilities, and they're, I'm generally speaking, better at it than people. Uh, so I started with domestic animals, dogs, cats, parrots, and horses, um, collected stories. I now have a database of more than 5,000 case histories of uh, stories that show people's animals can pick up their intentions. When they're in the same room, uh, which commonly happens, uh, they, they commonly pick up people's intentions. Uh, it could be subtle cues, body language, and so forth. But when people are miles away, you can't explain it in those terms, which is why I focused my research on uh, dogs and cats that know when their owners are coming home. Um, this work is summarized in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, the papers, again, all these papers are on peer-reviewed uh, in journals. They're all on my website if you want to read the details. In these experiments, basically, we had people go at least five miles away. We filmed the place the dog waited. We had them come home at random times they didn't know in advance, so it wasn't routine. We had them come in unfamiliar vehicles, usually taxis, uh, different taxi each time, so there was no familiar car sounds. And the people at home didn't know when they were coming and sometimes there were no people at home. And over and over again, these dogs would go and start waiting at the door 20 minutes or so before the person came home. In fact, they started when the person formed the intention to come home. Um, and this is a repeatable phenomenon. In fact, it's easier to repeat these experiments with dogs than people, because most psychic research tests are rather boring, the human ones, and people's scores tend to fall off. They get bored. Dogs never get bored of their owners coming home, so you can do it over and over again. <laughs> the most common uh, form of telepathy in the modern world is with telephones. Um, surveys show that more than 80% of the population have had the experience of thinking of someone who shortly afterwards then rings. They say, it's funny, I was just thinking about you. Or people know who it is uh, when they, before they look at the caller ID or answer the phone. Again, so-called skeptics and materialists have uh, dismissed this evidence for over a century by just saying it's make-believe, it's superstition, it's just coincidence, you forget all the times you're wrong and only remember when it seems to be telepathic. Well, we've tested that, and again, some of you will have uh, read about these experiments. They're summarized in the sense of being stared at, and again, in peer-reviewed journal papers. Um, in the basic test, we have four callers, 
We pick you, if you were the subject, you give us the names of four people you might be telepathic with. We pick one of them at random, ask them to ring you. When the phone rings, you're being filmed. You have to guess before you answer it who's on the phone. By chance, you'd be right 25% of the time. And in fact, in hundreds of trials, the average was about 45% of the time, massively significant statistically. I now have an automated test of this kind on my website, which works on mobile phones, so any of you can have a go, and do have a go, because I've just launched this. It's uh, only been online in its new, improved version for the last few days. Go to my website, sheldrake.org, and um, look at uh, the Take Part section, and you'll find the telephone telepathy test. Telepathy also occurs uh, very commonly between mothers and babies. And I've done a study on telepathy between um, babies and lactating mothers. Many women find that when they start going back to work after their baby's a few months old, when they're still breastfeeding, um, that they can have milk letdowns. Their breasts start squeezing out milk for no apparent reason. And it turns out this coincides with their baby waking up and needing them. And I've done detailed studies on this that show uh, this is not just a coincidence. It, it's way beyond coincidence. The odds against chance are about a billion to one for this phenomenon in, in the studies I did in North London. So telepathy is another way in which our minds reach out. Uh, we're influenced by other people's intentions, uh, and, but, but the, it only really works with people you know well, with whom you have emotional bonds. And it works with dogs you know well, or cats you know well. It doesn't work with random people. Um, so that's to do with the social group. So our minds are extended socially in the sense that through our emotional and social bonds, we remain connected with people, even if they're literally on the other side of the world. I've done these telepathy tests with people in Australia from England, um, and they work just as well uh, the other side of the world as they do nearby in England. So those are two ways in which the minds, our minds are extended in space. Now I want to look at the ways they're extended in time. And everybody knows that our minds are extended in time through the phenomenon of memory. Um, our minds connect with our pasts through our memories. That's why we can recognize people, remember things we've done, remember facts, and remember the habits and the things we've learned, remembering how to drive a car or ride a bike or play tennis or whatever. Um, these all depend on, on, on memories. Now, uh, we also have a connection with the future through our plans and our desires and our fantasies and our intentions. Um, so our minds are very extended in time, subjectively. Um, but the, again, the conventional view within um, institutional science is that all these memories are inside the brain. All our memories are stored as physical traces somewhere inside our brains. A hundred years of research have failed to reveal these supposed memory traces, um, but people then just say, well, we need even more money and even more time, and we'll look harder, and soon we'll find them. But they, they proved very, very elusive. And I think the reason that memories have proved, that these supposed physical memory traces have proved so elusive is that they're not there. I don't think the brain works uh, like a video recorder storing everything you remember inside the nervous tissue. Uh, instead, I think it works like a tuning system, more like a TV, and picks up transmissions from your past which go across time 
by the process I call morphic resonance. Morphic resonance is a scientific hypothesis that suggests there's an inherent memory in nature, that the so-called laws of nature are more like uh, habits. Um, each species has a kind of collective memory. We tune into innumerable people in the past, and each species has a, a memory derived from past members of the species. Instincts are like habits of the species. Um, morphic resonance works by a resonance process across time. I summarize this in my book, The Science Delusion, and the most detailed theoretical treatment is in my book, The Presence of the Past. Um, I don't have time this evening to explain the hypothesis. If you've not heard of it before, it'll probably be very baffling and uh, surprising. But it is testable, and it has been tested. One prediction is that if you train rats to learn a new trick in London, rats all around the world will learn it quicker thereafter. And there's already evidence this happens. Um, so uh, it's, it's a testable hypothesis. Morphic resonance depends on similarity. The more similar something is in the present, uh, to something in the past, the stronger the resonance. We all tune into other people in the past, especially people who are more like us, like past members of our family, uh, because of similarity, part of our collective memory. But uh, the person in the past who's most like you and me is you and me. Um, you're more like you in the past than like anybody else. And I'm more like me in the past than, like, than anybody else. And that's why self-resonance uh, is the most predominant form of morphic resonance working upon us, which is why we have our own memories first and foremost against a background of collective memory. So I'm suggesting collective memory and individual memory are two aspects of the same phenomenon, different in degree but not in kind. So uh, our minds are expanded in space by morphic resonance from the past. Um, and they occasionally seem to be connected with the future in a very mysterious way. I don't have a theory of precognition. Uh, morphic resonance is a theory about influences from the past. But I think there's no doubt that precognition can happen, uh, particularly in dreams. Most of us have precognitive dreams, although we usually forget them, just as we forget most of our dreams. Um, but if you write your dreams down and do a particular exercise that um, I discuss in my book, The Sense of Being Stared At, um, you'll soon find, at least I soon found, uh, that I was having precognitive dreams that I'd not been aware of before, usually dreaming of things that happen in the next two or three days, vivid imagery of uh, specific things that happen um, that couldn't possibly have got into my mind uh, any other way except through some mysterious influence from the future, working back in time. Of course, it raises all sorts of paradoxes. Um, but what we're doing in precognition is essentially contacting our own minds in the future, just as we contact them in the past through memory. And some people suggest that instead of precognition, we should call it pre-call, because it's like the future version of recall. Now, these are ways in which our minds are extended in space and time, and ways in which uh, our minds are similar to those of all other creatures, um, not specific to humans, uh, any of these phenomena. Uh, but I want to turn now to um, mystical experiences, experiences in which uh, people feel that their own mind is part of a vastly greater mind. These experiences occur spontaneously, 
Many people have had mystical experiences at some stage in their life. Um, it used to be thought this was something that only happened to medieval mystics and, and saints you know, hundreds of years ago. But there have now been many surveys that show uh, such phenomena are quite common. Uh, 10, 20, even 30% of the population uh, seem to have had them. <coughs> Feelings of being part of a greater presence, part of a consciousness far greater than our own. Uh, sometimes this comes about through near-death experiences, sometimes spontaneously in nature, sometimes through psychedelic experiences, and sometimes during meditation or through other spiritual practices. And as I show in my most recent book, Science and Spiritual Practices, um, these practices which uh, are found in all religions um, are ways of uh, establishing connections between the very basis of our own consciousness and greater minds or forms of consciousness at a more than human level. So, for example, in meditation, um, the, the, there's now many studies, many scientific studies of spiritual practices, and the studies on meditation um, show that there's a whole range of measurable effects of meditating. There's a calming down of the whole physiology, deactivation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is about being afraid, activation of the parasympathetic system, which is about being relaxed and not in a state of fear. Um, the, the people who regularly meditate tend to sleep better, um, they have a greater well-being. Um, in fact, spiritual practices as a whole, um, if you take the, the overview of religious and spiritual practices, uh, there's now a vast amount of evidence that shows that people who have regular practices, uh, spiritual or religious practices, uh, are happier, healthier, and live longer than those that don't. Um, this is where I think atheism should come with a health warning. Um, and um, the, um, in meditation, there are many effects on physiology, well-being. Um, and now millions of people meditate. I, when I was at school, uh, I'd never heard of meditation. No one told me about it. Uh, it was very little known in England. Now it's known all over the world, like yoga, um, and millions of people do it, usually in a secular spirit, um, not um, for the same reason that people traditionally did it in the contemplative traditions of Christianity, Buddhism, Sufism, um, Hinduism, and so on. Um, but they do it because it has these measurable and easily understandable effects on our well-being and health. There are lots of popular books on meditation, like Ruby Wax's book, Frazzled, about how it can help you uh, deal with the stresses and strains of a modern world. But that's not why uh, people meditated uh, in these traditional contexts. They meditated for a quite different reason. The clearest explanations um, are those provided by the Hindu tradition. And in the Upanishads, um, the, 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 there's a very clear statements uh, about the way that our minds are part of fractal versions. They don't use the word fractal, but they're like uh, versions of, or derivative from, uh, the ultimate consciousness which underlies the whole universe. Brahman, 
the name often given in the Indian tradition to this ultimate consciousness, um, is the same as Atman, our own inner conscious spirit. And the point of meditation in those traditions is to reach the ground of consciousness itself, uh, at which point we become one with this greater consciousness. And this greater consciousness on the, in the Hindu tradition is, is threefold in its nature, sat, chit, ananda. Sat is the ground of consciousness, uh, the ground of all conscious being, that which enables consciousness to happen. Chit uh, is knowledge, uh, or the realm of names and forms. It's to do with the contents of consciousness. You couldn't have contents of consciousness without consciousness itself. But there's a distinction between the changing contents of consciousness and the, the ground of all consciousness. And then there's the dynamical principle, um, which in some Hindu traditions is called Shakti, uh, which is the energy principle, the principle of movement and change, uh, but which is also the principle of joy, and Ananda means joy. And the idea is the ultimate consciousness is not trying to get anywhere or go anywhere, it doesn't lack anything, and it's intrinsically joyful which is why mystical experiences, uh, when people have them, are extraordinarily joyful or blissful. Sometimes an experience of this kind, which may last only a minute or two, is enough to change the course of someone's life, as often happens to people who've had near-death experiences. So um, the, the ultimate ground of being is something we contact through spiritual practices. Um, and the, that's a mind very far beyond the brain, the ultimate mind on which all forms of consciousness within the universe depend. The models of ultimate consciousness in different religious traditions are surprisingly similar. They're uh, nearly always Trinitarian, threefold. Um, so it's not the, the, the God or the ultimate reality is not just an undifferentiated consciousness. A consciousness, it's a consciousness with an internal physiology and differentiation. The Christian model is the Holy Trinity, and the Holy Trinity has as the ground of being God the Father, um, plays the same role as Sat in Sat Chitananda. And the basic revelation of God to Moses in the Old Testament, the first statement of, by God about his own nature at the burning bush is, I am that I am a statement of conscious being in the present. I mean, it's just not with no content, just simply I am the, the conscious being in the present. The Logos in the Christian Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, the second aspect, is that Logos means word, um, but it's not just spoken words, it's about forms, what the Hindus call names and forms. Um, and they, they underlies all the forms and structures and meanings and, and patterns in the whole universe. And then um, the Holy Spirit in, in the Trinity is the dynamical principle of movement and change, breath, wind, the flow of air. Um, the principal model of consciousness in, in the principal metaphor in the Christian model is speech. That like I'm speaking now, I am the speaker as a unified source. The words you're hearing are the words I'm speaking. Um, they have, I hope, meaning, pattern, form. Um, and uh, they're carried on the breath. If I wasn't breathing out while I speak, the, the words would be silent in my mind. If I only breathe out, 
You don't hear the words, there's just the flow of breath. So the three go together, the ground of being, the, the, the forms, meanings, words, patterns, structures, and the energy. And actually, in the whole universe, this is what we find, according to modern science, it explains matter is now explained in terms of fields, which give shape or form or pattern, and energy, uh, which gives the flow or activity of nature. So we actually have um, a source of energy on the one hand and form on the other. Now, for all religious traditions, this ultimate reality is conscious. What makes materialism different is not the basic idea of fields and energy. They have the idea that fields and energy are there, but they assume they're totally unconscious. And Lawrence Krauss, for example, a leading atheist, great friend of Richard Dawkins, uh, wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing uh, two or three years ago to prove you don't need God. Um, but actually, his universe from nothing is not from nothing. Uh, it turns out it depends on the laws of nature, which he doesn't explain at all, mathematical principles of reason and order, on the one hand, which he presupposes without explaining how they got there. On the other hand, an infinite source of energy, a quantum vacuum field from which fluctuations can give rise to whole universes. So he's got the Logos principle, he's got the spirit principle, and a common source of both. The only difference is that his uh, uh, ultimate reality is unconscious and uh, joyless, whereas in religions, <laughs> the ultimate principle is conscious and joyful. Um, uh, so it's not as if the atheist worldview has gone away from these fundamental principles. They've just produced a, a, a kind of downgraded version of them, uh, which has nothing in it for mystical experience, can't explain mystical experiences. They try to explain them all just by changes in the brain or flooding bits of the brain with dopamine or other neurotransmitters. Um, so they have to try and reduce all these things to the inside of the head. In the end, we all have a choice um, whether we prefer to understand our consciousness in terms of a theory, the materialist theory, uh, which itself cannot actually explain consciousness. If we want to put that belief system first, as materialists do, and deny our own experience, we have that choice. But for most of us, I think, our own experience has to be the ultimate test of reality. And our own experience of our minds being extended in every act of perception, our own experience of them being, being interconnected through telepathic uh, links with other people and with animals, our own experiences of uh, a sense of unity with a reality greater than our own. Um, and our, our own experiences of mystical states, if we have them, or, or states we arrive at through spiritual practices, um, tell us that our minds are vastly more extensive than our brains. Our brains have a role, obviously. Uh, they enable us to coordinate our activities and movements. Um, but I think they're more like filters than generators of consciousness. Um, yet, as soon as you go out into the modern world, as soon as you enter an educational institution, uh, you'll find that you're back in the materialist world, uh, where it's nothing but the body and the brain. Um, and this is still what most of our universities are teaching, it's what our schools are teaching, it's what our medical, official medical system is based upon. Um, and yet most people in their private lives don't really experience things that way. 
And I think we're on the threshold of a major shift in consciousness, and I think the Advaya uh, Initiative is, is part of that, actually, in, in opening up uh, a new way of expand, uh, uh, seeing our minds as vastly greater uh, than our brains. Our brains are wonderful, and they play a vastly important role, as anyone who has brain damage quickly realizes. I'm not saying the brain doesn't count, it does, um, but consciousness is vastly greater than the brain, and that's why at uh, the start of this evening I'm talking about the mind beyond the brain. Thank you. You've been listening to Advaya Talks. If you liked what you heard, consider exploring our online courses with the leading minds of our time at advaya.co.